through the book of John this year in the chapel. And we came to the story of Nicodemus last week. We could have titled this last week's message, Nick at Night, but I didn't. But I'm telling you about it now. Nicodemus, we know, is a Pharisee. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. He's a Jew among Jews. And he comes to Jesus at night, and sometimes you step back and think, why did he come at night? Did he come because he was afraid to be seen with Jesus? Could, could word get back to the Sanhedrin, and he become in trouble or ostracized by his buddies at the Sanhedrin? Or did he come at night because it was the time he could catch Jesus maybe alone and have a little more quality conversation? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us that. But I need to tell you about Nicodemus. I left us hanging last week. Nicodemus, by John chapter 7, has become a defender of Christ. And by the end of John, he's one of the two men that claimed the body of Christ off the cross to prepare it for burial. So if Nicodemus came at night because he didn't want to be identified with Christ, he got over that by the end of John because in broad daylight he takes the body of Christ. Maybe in John 3, he doesn't want to be identified with Christ, but he's inquisitive, he's questioning. And he asks a good question. It really says, we see or we know that you must be from God because the things you do, you're doing these miracles, they're powerful. You, you've got to be blessed by God to do what you're doing. So he's inquisitive, and by the end of John, he's become a follower of Christ. He's become one not afraid to be identified with Jesus. So the title of the message is, Jesus Must Be Lifted Up. And I love the word must. It's in the passage. Must be lifted up. And Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. This occurs three times in the Gospel of John. And I think it has two connotations. I think, one, he will be lifted up, literally, physically, on a cross. But he also needs to be exalted. And so let me read the passage and ask this question. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw them into myself. So for you this morning, the question is, have you been drawn to Jesus? Three points in the message this morning. You know you've been drawn to Jesus if you've come to life, if you've come to salvation, and if you've come to the light. So ask yourself that question as we unpack the, the scripture this morning. Have I personally been drawn to Jesus because he's been lifted up? Let me read the first part of the passage starting in verse 14. John chapter 3, Jesus is still speaking to Nicodemus. Jesus has tried to explain things to Nicodemus. I mean, the first deer in headlight moment that Nicodemus has is when Jesus says, you must be born again. For Nicodemus, that's like, what in the world? How, how do you do that? I can't enter back into my mother's womb to be born, can I? And of course, that's not what Jesus is talking about. But the radical process, the radical thing that would happen is that Nicodemus would be transformed, renewed, not just cleaned on the outside, but recreated from the inside out to come to faith in Christ. And so Jesus used the term, you must be born again. And so in that conversation, Jesus continues. He even makes the comment earlier in the passage, are you the teacher of Israel? And you don't understand these things. And we get to verse 14. And Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that. Whoever believes in him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish 
but had eternal, everlasting life. So Jesus gives Nicodemus an illustration, one that Nicodemus would have been very familiar with. Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. What is that all about? Well, in the book of Numbers, the children of Israel have left Egypt. They're spending 40 years in the wilderness. It shouldn't have taken that long, but because of their disobedience, they spent 40 years in the wilderness before they entered the promised land. And they started grumbling. They did it a lot. They even grumbled to the point of saying, you know, well, let's just go back to Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt, treated horribly. But they get out, and they get tired of the food. <laughs> so they start complaining. It's kind of funny. But because of their complaint against God and against Moses, God judges them. God sends fiery serpents. In fact, for illustration purposes, our staff's going to release a few serpents into the crowd this morning. No, we're not, we're not that kind of church. We don't do snake handling. Just kidding. My staff's out there going, he didn't give me a serpent. <laughs> and here's what would happen. If the serpents would bite you, you would get a fever and die. And so people were dying. The same ones that had grumbled against God are now dying. They've been judged. And they cry out for mercy. They come and repent. They ask Moses, hey, talk to God on our behalf. And so God says, Moses, fashion a serpent, a bronze serpent, and put it on a stick. And when they're bit by the snake, if they'll just look at the serpent, they'll live. They didn't get it at that moment. In fact, the thought is, okay, did some of them not look at the serpent? Why wouldn't you do what God's told you to do? And yet I'm sure there are some that said, no, you know, we're going to figure this out on our own. I'll get better. This isn't the COVID virus. I'll get over it. But if you looked at the serpent, that's all you had to do, and you would live even though you'd been bit by the snake that before that had killed people. Well, it's a beautiful picture of what was going to happen to Jesus. What Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, and when the serpent was lifted up and people looked at it, they were saved. Jesus said, even so, the Son of Man will be lifted up. In fact, the Son of Man must be lifted up. It is necessary. It is God's plan. And in John's writings, he says it three times. In John 3, in John 8, and John 12. The Son of Man must be lifted up. And when he is, he draws men to himself. Both physically, he's going to be lifted up off the ground on the cross. But more than that, he needs to be exalted. So that whoever believes in him would have eternal life. In fact, the phrase eternal life occurs 15 times in the Gospel of John. This is the first time it occurs. But it means this. It means perpetual, never-ending Zoe, life. Two Greek words for life, bios, which just means you got the biology of life. Zoe, which means abundant. The kind of life God intended for you to have. So here's what, what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you came asking a question. You must be from God, for no one could do the things that you're doing unless God were with him. But Nicodemus, you need to understand something. The word's better than that. I've come to bring you life, that whosoever believes. In the same way in the wilderness, when you got bit by the snake, you had to look at the serpent. Now you look to Jesus. And if you look to Jesus, you trust him as your Lord and Savior, and you believe in him, then you have eternal life. Not just life without end, but Zoe life, abundant life, the way God intended for life to be.
And then we get to that familiar verse. It's got to be the most familiar verse in all of Scripture, and that is John 3.16. Most of you have memorized it. I memorized it in the King James Version because I'm 100 years old. And that's all there was when I was about 12 in RAs back in a Baptist church in Macon, Georgia. And so I still a lot of times quote it that way. But here's the problem with familiar verses. What happens? You've heard it so many times, you don't pay attention to it. It's like when you're on an airplane. You remember when you used to fly? In our country, we used to have airplanes. You could go places on airplanes. And what they would do is come on with all this instruction about, you know, masks falling from the ceiling and seat bottoms can be used as flotation device. And you don't pay attention to it anymore. Why? Because you've heard it before. It would help if they snazz it up and, you know, add something that just kind of catches you off guard and say, oh, they've added a feature to the seat. I've always thought it'd be funny if they'd say your seat bonnet can be used for a flotation device. Sorry, it's still wet from the last landing. That would get your attention. You'd start thinking, where are the straps here? Where, how, do I, how do I inflate my own mask? So let's walk through it just a bit. For God. This is Jesus speaking, John 3, 16, for God. So God takes the initiative. For God. So loved. It's the word for abundant love. It's the word agape. It's unconditional, constant, limitless, not an impulse for, from feelings. God didn't just look down on mankind and say, you know what, they're nice looking people. No, even when we were unlovely, God loved us so much that he gave. In fact, for God so loved the world. That is not what Nicodemus would have believed up to this point. Up to this conversation with Jesus, you, you said, Nicodemus, does God love you? He'd have said, absolutely. Why, Nicodemus? Because I'm a Jew. And not only am I a Jew, I've done extra credit. <laughs> Any teachers here, still, we still do extra credit? See, I'm thinking, don't do extra credit. Just do what the credit I asked you to do to start with. But anyway, Nicodemus has done extra credit. Not only is he born into the Jewish family, which was, in his mind, good enough, he's a Pharisee. He's become a separatist. I mean, he's religion on top of religion. Not only that, now he's part of the ruling class. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. He's done extra credit. So, Nicodemus, does God love you? Absolutely. Why? Because I'm a Jew. I'm a Pharisee. I'm a member of the Sanhedrin. I'm the teacher of Israel. And so for him to hear God so loved the world, you've got to stop for a minute and realize, Nicodemus, the world. That means people that don't look like you, people that don't talk like you, people that aren't you. God loves them just like he loves you. Well, that has to put Nicodemus a little bit on his head because that is not a thought he had ever had before. Nicodemus knew the Old Testament inside and out. He should have known the prophecies and the Messiah that was coming, but the Messiah that did come did not fit with his human mentality and mindset. Now, he finally got it right, but God so loved the world. That's good news, folks. God loves sinners. Did you know that? Which is good news because who, who are sinners? All of us. So it's good news that God so loved the world. In fact, the proof is Romans 5, 8. Paul writing in Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, God demonstrated, God proved his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Think about that for a minute. God didn't send an instruction manual down and say, if you'll just get this right, I'll love you. No, God said, I love you even when you are walking away from me. Even when you are blaspheming my name. Even when you are sinning. I loved you so much that I gave. 
and he gave. This is the heart of the gospel. God took the initiative and he gave. If you love somebody, don't you love giving things to them? But more than just stuff, you give yourself. And that's what God has done. What does it take to be a gift? We're kind of confused about gifts in our culture. In order for something to be a gift, I got three thoughts. One, it has to be offered by somebody that has it to give. I can't give you a million dollars. I can write you a check, but in about two days, there's going to be people showing up at my door arresting me, putting me in prison for writing a bad check. My check is going to bounce. So in order for a gift to be a gift, first thing, it's got to be offered by somebody who has the ability to give it. Secondly, it has to be free. I've had phone calls. We have a gift for you. Great, send it. No, we're going to need a credit card. Why? Well, it's pay for shipping. Why is it going to cost $100 to send a clock radio to me? That's not a gift. That's not free. That's something you pay for. It's not a free donut if you've got to buy a small coffee. You get it? So for something to be a gift, it has to be free, or it's not a gift. It's a payment. In fact, when you give gifts, what do people say? If you walk in unexpectedly with a gift, what are they likely to say? I didn't get you anything. Even in our gift giving sometimes, it's out of obligation that, well, I know you're going to get me something, so I've got to get you something corresponding to what you're giving me. It, it quits being a gift, then it becomes a payment. But the third thing for it to be a true gift, it has to be received. It's still an offer of a gift, but it hadn't accomplished the purpose of a gift if it hadn't been received. So gifts have to be given by somebody who has the capacity to give it. It has to be free. And it has to be received in order for the gift to be completed. So God so loved the world that he gave. What did he give? His only begotten son. What does begotten mean? It's the only one he's got. It literally means unique, one of a kind, eternal, one and only. Jesus wasn't born into the Godhead. Jesus has existed from all eternity. In fact, he was part of the process of creation. In fact, John chapter 1, the first part of this gospel you looked at on Easter Sunday, he was at creation. Everything that's been created was created through and by Christ. So that's the only begotten Son, that whosoever believes, whosoever says, I place my faith there, whosoever acknowledges I need a Savior, and so rather than trying to save myself, I'm not going to, in the process of Moses telling me to look at the serpent, uh, the bronze serpent and be healed, I'm not going to look for a solution other ways. I'm going to look to where he tells me to look. And he says to look to Jesus, though, whoever believes, literally to entrust your spiritual well-being to Jesus Christ, that's what believing, shall not perish. The word perish means to be destroyed. That's why God came. That's why God sent Jesus Christ. That's why God stepped out of heaven in the person of Jesus was born of Mary, placed in a manger, lived a perfect life. Around the age of 30, was baptized by John the Baptist. Had about a three-year ministry. Ultimately was crucified on the cross, rose from the dead on the third day so that you don't perish. So the gift's there. The gift's been offered. It's been offered by somebody that had the capacity to give it. It's been offered by somebody who says, this is my free gift. You don't earn it but it's got to be received so that you don't perish but have eternal life. Here's the problem. 
Jesus came to do exactly that in according to John chapter 1. He came to his own. He came to the Jew first. He was going to get around to us. But to his own people, they did not receive him. But to those who did receive him, he gave them the right to become children of God. So, lift up Jesus. He draws all people to himself. How do you know you've been drawn to Jesus? Have you come to life? Have you received the eternal, abundant life that starts the day you trust Christ as your Lord and Savior and lasts for all of eternity? Second thought is, do you come to salvation? Next two verses, verses 17 and 18. For God did not send the Son into the world so to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So that starts off with for God. So he's assigning a reason. We just heard God so loved the world he gave. But Nicodemus assumed when the Savior came, when the Messiah came, he was coming on blazing saddles to judge the world. And Nicodemus was thinking, I'm not going to receive judgment because I'm in good standing. But you're going to take care of all these people. And Jesus says, "Uh, I didn't come to judge the world. I came to save the world. Big difference. In fact, the word judge carries a connotation of condemnation. Their common belief was that the Messiah was coming to do exactly that, condemn the world. But that's not what Jesus came for. He came that the world might be saved, literally delivered, protected, to be made whole again. Jesus came to offer redemption to man so that through him, whoever believes would not be judged. Isn't that great? Paul writing in Romans, if you read the seventh chapter of Romans, he says, you know, the thing I want to do, I don't do. The thing I don't want to do is what I do. Oh, woe is me. I'm just, I'm wicked. And yet you get to verse one of chapter eight of Romans. And it says, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let that sink in. Leave that on the screen a minute. Who does that apply to? Children of God. Do we deserve that? No. You know what we deserve? We deserve judgment and punishment. But that's why it's a free gift. We get something we don't deserve. We get grace. We receive mercy. And so I'm not condemned, even though I was a dirty, rotten sinner, and I still mess up. I know that shocks you. But there's still times I say the wrong things, do the wrong things, or think the wrong things. I still sin, and yet I'm forgiven. Not because of me, but because of God who loved me enough to send his only son, Jesus, so that I don't face condemnation and judgment. So that's the option. Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus and saying, whosoever believes won't be judged. But those who don't believe have already been judged. Because they haven't believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And you and I sit here and think, why in the world would somebody not believe (laughs) this offer of this free gift of eternal life? Why would somebody say, no, I'm going to stick this on my own? Because that's human nature. We'll get to a little bit more of that in the last point. But you ever had somebody just say, you know what, I don't don't believe in God. I don't believe in Jesus. One of my favorite answers to that or my favorite thought-provoking statement, and you've heard me say it before, is, Describe for me the Jesus you don't believe. Because the Jesus a lot of people have rejected is not the Jesus of the New Testament. It may be the Jesus of their upbringing. It may be 
well-meaning parents or grandparents taught them something and said, this is in the Bible. My grandmother did that, not that it was bad, but there were times she would say, my Bible says, and I finally realized some of what her Bible said wasn't in my Bible. Within the last two weeks, the lead singer of the Christian group, Hawk Nelson, has come out. His name is John Steingard, and he said, I don't believe in God anymore. And you read the headline, it sounds a lot worse than it is. I'm hopeful for John, because here's what he says in the body of his text. He grew up in a preacher's home. He said, I hope that God does exist, but I just don't believe he's what I've grown up believing he is. And I don't know what kind of upbringing he had. I don't know what misconstrued nature of God he has. But that gives me hope that if he's seeking God, Maybe he would turn his back on what he's been taught all his life and find out what the Bible says about that. Describe for me the Jesus you don't believe in. Folks, listen, the Jesus of the New Testament was one who came to offer a sacrifice so that I could be forgiven, so that I could have salvation, so that I could be saved and spend eternity with him in heaven. It really is good news. Why has man made it bad news? Because we're stupid. Because we're sinful. Because we try to take it and package it in something that makes us more comfortable. And it shouldn't be that way. So not only does God draw all people to himself, to life, we're drawn to salvation. Last, we're drawn to life. We're drawn to life. Let me read the last three verses, 19 through 21. This is the judgment. That the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does not, everyone who does evil and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. This is still part of John chapter 3 where Jesus is talking about you must be born again. And here's some fleshing out of the practical nature of that. You're going to get life. You're going to get salvation. And ultimately, you're going to come to the light where the truth of your deeds will be exposed. But here's the judgment. You've already been judged. The light's come, and men love the darkness rather than the light. Here's the problem with people that walk in darkness. They don't want the light to expose what their life's all about. I grew up in a home that if you got up at 3 o'clock in the morning and went to get something out of the kitchen, as soon as you turned the light switch on, bugs would just scatter because they didn't like the light. Now, in Georgia, we call them roaches. In South Carolina, you call them palmetto bugs. I call them land shrimp. (laughs) But what is it about those things that you can't find them until the lights go out and you flip the light on, try it, 3 o'clock in the morning, and you're thinking, no, we have an exterminator. We don't have bugs. I promise you, you got bugs at your house. But we act like that. Sinful man is kind of like a roach. We party in the darkness because our deeds are evil. But as soon as the light's on, it makes us uncomfortable. Some have made a choice to walk in darkness because that is what they love. But I promise you, it won't give you life. It ultimately brings death. In fact, it brings misery while you're in it. Everyone who does evil hates the light, does not come to the light, for fear that their deeds would be exposed. First example of that was Adam and Eve. What did they do? 
Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden. They were in the perfect place. They had fellowship with God, and yet they succumbed to the enemy. And what do they do? They hide from God because they know what they did was wrong. I encourage you, don't play hide-and-seek with God. He knows where you are. You might as well do what my youngest son did when he played hide-and-seek. Count to 100, Dad. I'm going to go hide. He didn't know how to. He didn't know the numbers to 100, so I could go one, two, three. All right, here I come. He would immediately jump out. Here I am. <laughs> and I thought that's the way we all ought to be. Listen, when you mess up, it, confess it. Get right with God. Don't try to pretend like it doesn't exist. Don't walk in darkness. That's why some non-Christians persecute Christians. There's some people that by your very light, walking in the darkness makes them uncomfortable. And they'll call you names. They'll ignore you. And in some places of the world, they're persecuting Christians like never before. Because men love the darkness. And I've been in some countries where that was just, when I left, I thought that is one of the darkest places I've ever been. And people are acting like they're having a good time. They've painted smiles on their faces. But they're in darkness. They're hopeless. But he who practices the truth, he who does what is right, morally, ethically, spiritually, comes to the light. Why? Because you want that to be exposed. You don't mind the spotlight shining on you when you're doing the right thing. So when the spotlight shines, your deeds are manifested. You want those exposed because they have been divinely prompted by God. So what? Let me close just with a few thoughts. Jesus must be lifted up. I'm concerned in our culture because that's not happening in every church that you go to. So I'm, I'm making a commitment. As long as I preach here, Jesus is going to be the center of focus. Jesus is going to be what we lift up here. If you find yourself in a place worshiping where something else becomes the focus, get out of there. Jesus must be lifted up. If you leave talking more about the cleverness of the preacher or the music or something else, if Jesus isn't the focus week in and week out, they've missed the point. The point is Jesus must be lifted up. And when Jesus is lifted up, he draws all men to himself. So let me close it just with four thoughts about Jesus being the main thing. John 14, 6, Jesus is the only way. Jesus has told his disciples, I'm about to leave you. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. Thomas speaks up and says, how do we know the way? And Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4, 12, there's no other name under heaven or earth by which men must be saved. There is no other name. Jesus has got to be the main thing. Jesus is the one we exalt. Jesus is the one that we lift up because in him there's life. There's no other way. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed this prayer, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. He did it three times, but every time he came back and said, but not my will, but your will be done because there is no other way. And last thought, is lift up Jesus. The pressure's not on you to save anybody. The responsibility that's on us is let's continue to lift up Jesus because there's a promise in Scripture. If Jesus is lifted up, he will draw people to himself.
So if you've got a loved one that you're praying for, just keep lifting Jesus up. you got somebody you go to school with, somebody you work with, somebody in your neighborhood, just make sure they see Jesus lifted up every time they're around. And claim the promise of he'll do the growing up work with us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Father, what an awesome conversation with the men and the Nicodemus. And Lord, to get to the point of John 3.16, to realize how much you love us, that you are willing to give. Jesus was willing to step out of the glory of heaven and come to earth to be put to death in our place. What an awesome thought. So God, would you, if we trusted you as our Lord and Savior, give us comfort in that today. But also, Lord, help us to lift up Jesus. Not just at church. But God, lift up Jesus where it's dark. So that people who are walking in darkness and are hopeless would see the light. And see that there's hope somewhere other than where they are. And they would come to faith in Jesus.